0: Okay, so during COVID, I started doing something that I thought I'd never start doing, okay? And I started hiking, all right? So I, I don't like hiking. I know it's the wrong city to live in if you don't like hiking, but I, I just, I don't like hiking. It's, just, it's hard walking, okay? I, I hardly like walking as it is. Like I like sitting, I like laying. And so hiking is just hard walking. And so I'm not a big fan of hiking. In fact, I've been on a hike with Vince and Verdi and I just passed out. And we were just walking like I just it's it's just hard walk. I've never been a, a, a big fan of hiking. I've never really uh, wanted to, to be a hiking person. But during COVID, I just kind of was sitting there with myself and I've just kind of looked at myself and I was just like, I, I'm, I'm unhealthy. Well, what I really thought was I'm, I'm too fat. I'm too fat. I've gotten the biggest I've ever been. I need a change. I need to do something different. And so I got it in my head one day, I just kind of spurred the moment, I was like, you know what, I'm going to hike Fat Man's Loop, it's named after me, let's do this, okay? Okay. I'm going to do it every day. I'm going to do it for 25 days. That was the decision I made during COVID. And so I I started doing it, and I started doing it every day. And I realized, hey, I could do this. This is possible. And it's getting closer to the 25th day. You go, you know what? I'm going to try to do 50 days in a row. And then as I started getting closer to the 50th day, you go, I go, you know what? I want to do 100 days in a row. And then now I'm just at this point where I'm just trying to do this hike every day that I can. Now, I don't hit every day, but I I probably hit it three, four, five times out of the week. And it's because COVID did this, thank you. (laughs) I feel like that's fat shaming me a little bit, but thank you for cheering me on. I'll hear it as cheering me on. Um, COVID had this kind of thing that it did to us where we began to like re-examine our lives. COVID was kind of this pressure cooker and we began to kind of feel things or see things or, or experience things that maybe we weren't experiencing when life was just status quo. But when life had been hit by COVID, we kind of began to go, hey, what, what's going on in my life? And for me, uh, you know, I, lo- I began to look at my health. What I noticed is in the church, everybody began to kind of examine their church-going life. Like here, and, and, and here in this church, but even you could really just see across our country, everybody began to go, hey, I'm going to examine my church-going life. I'm going to examine my faith. I'm going to ask myself the question, what does it mean for me to be part of the local church that I'm part of? And so COVID had this effect not just on my health, but it had this effect on all of us as a whole in all sorts of ways. And one of the ways it did it is it made us go, what does it mean for me to be part of the local church? And we began to ask ourselves some questions. Some of us began to say, hey, what kind of church do I really want to be part of? Some of us began to say, hey, do I even want to be part of any church? As a lot of things were happening culturally and some pastors were talking about and some weren't talking about, some of us began to go, what am I okay with my pastor talking about? And then some of us go, what am I not okay with my pastor talking about? And then another group of us went, what does my pastor need to talk about that he doesn't talk about? And COVID became this pressure cooker for the church and and how we examine what it means for us to be part of this local church. And part of that was because I think there was some of us, we sensed this danger on the horizon. Like for some of us, we saw that, that the church was starting to become this place in moments and in pockets where it didn't look that the people in here didn't look that different from the people out there. Right, like that, when you took someone in here that said Jesus is Lord and you compare them to someone that just said, hey, God isn't real, that their lives weren't that different and that the world really kind of influenced, that the American culture really kind of influenced the church. And so there was a group of us that sensed this danger and said, hey, there's this danger coming where we've forgotten our identity as a church and we've just taken on our culture's identity. I think that's part of why some people began to, Look at their church. Another aspect of why people, I think, began to uh, examine their church-going lives is because they were discouraged by the church. As we were all locked inside and inside more, we began to watch our brothers and sisters in Christ post stuff on Facebook that we never knew they thought. We began to see how they interacted with people. And if you're like me, you'd post something and you'd see how uh, brothers and sisters in Christ would interact with non-Christians. And you'd go, what is going on here? Why are my brothers and sisters in Christ not loving the way that they're called to love? And so a whole bunch of us also, we, be, we became came discouraged by the church. We said, is this really the people of God? How could this be? Today we're starting the book of Nehemiah. Today we're starting the book of Nehemiah. And here's what the book of Nehemiah attempts to do. It attempts to answer the question, what does it mean for us to be the people of God? Now really, if you go to every book in the Bible, it's going to try to answer that question in some way. What does it mean for us to be the people of God? But what's unique about Nehemiah is it attempts to answer that question when Israel is in danger and when they're in discouragement. You see, in Nehemiah's day, Israel's in danger because this huge empire had come in and taken over Israel, and they were a small minority people. And they were in danger of living unlike God's people. But in Nehemiah's day as well, there was a lot of discouragement because people began to go, the people of God, the Israelites, they began to go, hey, are we really even God's people? Is God even real? Maybe the pagan gods are more powerful than our God because our land and our people are scattered and our land is broken down and beat up. And so the book of Nehemiah attempts to answer the question, what does it mean for us to be God's people in times of danger, and times of discouragement? And that's what I want us to begin to walk through as we walk through Nehemiah. What does it mean for us, for those of us that sense the danger, what does it mean for us to be God's people? For those of us that are discouraged by God's people, the church, what does it mean for us to be God's people? And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to hop into Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to go through the first few verses, and then we're going to stop, and we're going to remember where Nehemiah is in the biblical story And then we're going to move on to this beautiful prayer of Nehemiah's where we read part of it already. And this beautiful raw prayer of Nehemiah's helps us to see what it means to be God's people in times of danger, in times of discouragement. This is only possible because Jesus has grafted us in into God's people. Right? Sometimes we read the Old Testament and we're like, ah, that's just history or that's just, you know, the Old Covenant. And and some of those hermeneutics, some of those ways to interpret the Bible are important. But we forget that what God wants for his people, although it might specifically play out differently because of Jesus, he still wants for us. And so... Nehemiah has so many ways to show us what it means for us to be God's people, and we get to see that because of what Jesus has done by grafting us in to the people of God. So before we get into Nehemiah chapter 1, something important to note. Hey, this is only possible uh, if if Jesus, right? This sermon could very quickly sound like I'm saying, hey, will yourself to be like this. Try to be like this, and that's what's important. But I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. Nehemiah looks to form the people of God, and how Nehemiah ends in chapter 13 is no one does it. And Nehemiah is losing his mind because no one is turning back to God the way they should be. And it's because they needed Jesus. They needed Jesus to come and form and shape their hearts and change their hearts. And so, if all you hear from me in this is, hey, will yourself to be the people of God, just do it all in your own strength, you're missing the point that we need Jesus to do something in our hearts. But that being said, Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, if you choose to follow him, if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and he resurrected, that means he has done something in your heart. And so we have this unique ability to follow Jesus and to have this grace-driven effort for our faith and really live out our identity as the people of God. So let's hop into Nehemiah, knowing all that. Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to start with the first three verses. It will be on the screen. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. How did God's people get here? How did they get to this place? We've got this guy, Nehemiah, who's clearly an Israelite, living over in Susa for a vacation. This was like a vacation area for Persian kings. So he's at this citadel in Susa, and his brother and friends, fellow Israelites come, who had been in Jerusalem, Israel, away, and he said, hey, how's it going there? They're like, it's not good. The remnant, the small group of Israelites that are back there, they're in trouble, they're in danger, there's no walls. The people of God don't look like the people of God. How did Israel get to this place? I want to give us a brief synopsis of the biblical story up to Nehemiah for, for two reasons. One, the better we can understand the biblical story, it will be easier for us to jump into books like Nehemiah. And it will help us to be, become more biblical literate. So that even in moments when the Bible is confusing, the more biblically literate that we are, it will become less confusing. Secondly, I think that knowing the biblical story well is something that's just going to serve us and help us to know what it means to live in these times of danger and discouragement ourselves. So a, a brief synopsis to how did the people of God get to this place where they're scattered and not living in Israel and there's no walls and there's maybe a small group back in Israel in Jerusalem, its capital. How did they get to this place? Well, the story of the Bible starts with God creating everything. God creates humanity. He creates Adam and Eve. And he wants Adam and Eve and all of humanity after them to be his image bearers and steward this place. To create culture. To multiply. He wants good for us. And he also wants to live with us. This is this picture in the Garden of Eden of God living with humanity. Unfortunately, humanity takes a turn. The serpent, Satan, comes in and and, uh, and convinces Eve to not trust God. To convince Eve that he's been holding back goodness. And so Eve disobeys God, eats this fruit. And Adam, who is probably just sitting there watching the whole time, not saying anything, he takes the fruit after her and eats too. And in that moment, all of humanity is fractured. All of humanity is wrecked. And God, because of his holiness, because of his purity, he he says, I can't live with you anymore. We can't be together anymore. And as he is making this separation between him and humanity, he says something to the serpent. He says something to Satan. He says, hey, through this woman, there's going to come a seed. And he's going to come and he's going to crush your head as you bite his heel. This is the first promise of God of what we see, an overarching theme throughout the Bible. God wants to restore everything. And the way he's going to do it is he's going to defeat sin and death and Satan. And so, there's more people and lots more people. And then there's this guy in the lineage of Eve named Abraham that God takes. He says, Abraham, I want to make you a family. Actually, I want to make you a great people. I want your uh, progenitors, I think is the word, progenitors, I want to make them even a great nation, and so that's what God does. He takes Abraham. His family gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And his great grandbabies have more grandbabies. And they become this big family until they find themselves in Egypt in this time where, where they were in famine. And so they're living in Egypt. And then they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then eventually, many generations have passed. And Egypt forgets the, the kind of this deal and the favor that Israel had had with them. And the pharaoh of Egypt decides to enslave all the people of Israel. At this point, a huge nation of people. And God says, hey, this isn't my plan for my people. This isn't my plan for this seed who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. So he he gets this guy Moses, and he says, hey, Moses, I want you to free my people. I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to free my people. And that's what God does. He frees his people. He takes the people. He takes them out of Egypt. And then what God begins to do is he doesn't just free a people, but he begins to form a people. He begins to create a people. He begins to make them truly a nation. He gives them this law, this good and beautiful law for them to live by. He helps them to know what it means to be God's people and how they're supposed to live. And Moses, when he's getting to the end of his life, he has this conversation that's referenced in Nehemiah. mind. he says, listen, your guys' hearts are hard. You really need someone someday to come and change your hearts You're not going to be faithful to God. And when you're not faithful to God, what's going to happen is God's going to scatter you. You're going to be scattered. Other countries are going to come in, and they're going to take you over, and you won't even really be a people anymore. And so after that, God's people, Israel, they try to be God's people. They try to live as that. But time and time and time again, they fail. And sometimes they turn back, and sometimes they turn farther away. And they do this for a long time until God says, you know what? I told you that if you turn from me, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to let other countries come in and take over. And so first the Assyrians came in, then the Babylonians, and then the Persians. And they came in in different generations. And this began this time of exile. You might hear when the people of God were in exile. Because what happened is how they did things back then is countries would come in and they would kidnap pretty much everybody and bring them over to their country to be slaves or servants or whatever. So that the people left in Israel, they just wouldn't even be a people. Or they wouldn't even be people that had value in their eyes. And this happens for a long time, that the people of God are in exile. This isn't just like a 25-year period it's at least a 70-year period, and really, it keeps going until Jesus returns because Rome eventually takes over Israel. And so the people of God are in exile until one day this king, King Cyrus, says, hey, I'm going to send all the people of God. I'm going to say, hey, you can go back to your land, and you can form your people. And so what happens is this guy's Zerubbabel, fun name, he goes and he, he rebuilds the temple. He says, hey, if we're going to be God's people, we got to remember God. We're God's people. So I'm going to build his temple, which represents his manifest presence and where we worship him. So he builds the temple. Then this priest came. His name was Ezra. And, and fun fact, Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book, but then it got separated. So we're kind of starting in the middle of the book, okay? Maybe not smart, but that's what we're doing. Ezra was this priest, and he kind of brought about this spiritual renewal in Israel where he got the people to confess their sin and turn back to God's law and, and do all of these things. And then, in the midst of all that, Nehemiah's brother goes to visit Israel and comes back to where Nehemiah is. And Nehemiah says, Hey, how are things? And he goes, Not nah, still, not great. Even though God's people began to be rebuilt. Even though the temple was rebuilt, even though there was a spiritual renewal, it still just wasn't looking great for God's people. It was hard for God's people to believe they were God's people if they didn't even have walls. And so we'll see how Nehemiah reacts to this in the next few verses here. And I'm going to read this whole prayer of Nehemiah's. It's a little bit long, but I think you guys can stay with me. And then what we're going to do is we're going to draw things from this prayer. We're going to draw three things from this prayer. And these things are going to attempt to answer the question, what does it mean for us to be the people of God? And I think coincidentally, the things for them in their day in in the midst of danger and discouragement that answered the question, what does it mean to be the people of God, are the same things for us in our danger and our discouragement. And so there will be three ways that this prayer shows us the answer to the question, what does it mean for us to be the people of God? Okay, let's hop into verse 4. Nehemiah just hears the news and then this is how he reacts. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules you've commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost, uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So Nehemiah hears about the state of Israel and he's discouraged. And he feels his people are in danger, and he just prays this beautiful, raw prayer to God. So here's something we have to know before we, we, we get into some of the ways these, this prayer answers this question: What does it mean for us to be God's people? Is Nehemiah is not just history. Certainly, the Bible is history. A lot of the Bible is history. Some of the books in particular have a more historical bent to them, and Nehemiah is one of those books. But Nehemiah knows what he's doing when he writes this stuff down. He knows what he's doing when he writes this stuff down. He wants to form a people. So when we see this prayer, Nehemiah's not just saying, hey, I just got to show them my journal entry from that day. He's trying to say, hey, here's what God was doing in my heart, and I want that to form us. I want us as the people of God to pray a prayer like this. And so Nehemiah is saying, hey, for us to be the people of God, we have to pray pray prayers like this. It's history in that Nehemiah really prayed this. It's a tool in that Nehemiah wants the people of God to be formed by this prayer. And so I want us to be formed by this prayer. What does it mean for us to be the people of God? What does it mean for us to be the people of God? And how does this prayer show us some things that help us answer that question? The first thing is this. For God's people then and God's people now, it's never too late to realign yourself with God and his purposes. Okay? It's never too late for God's people right now to realign yourself with God and his purposes. This, this prayer is so clearly a prayer of Nehemiah going, man, we got this all wrong. We have messed up. We didn't do this right. Everybody's at fault. We deserve what we've gotten. But he's also saying, in fact, I want me, Nehemiah, and the people of God to turn back to you. Because I know your love is faithful and steadfast. And I know that if we turn back to you, you will receive us with open arms. It's never too late For God's people to realign themselves with God and His purposes. Church, if in these times where we're discouraged and things feel dangerous for the church here, if in these times we don't think we can turn back to God and His purposes, we're gonna have a problem. When we see danger on the horizon, when we're discouraged by the church, what we have to do ourselves is go, hey, how do I turn back to God and his purposes? How do I realign myself with God and his purposes? It's never too late for us to turn back. Our lives can be in ruins. The church in America can be in ruins. And it's still not too late for us to turn back to God and realign ourselves with his purposes. Amen, right? That was actually a very sincere and genuine amen, so I don't want this to come across badly. But sometimes we say amen for the other people in the room and not ourselves. Right? We're going, amen, there are some people in this room that need to realign themselves with God and his purposes, right? Amen, there is someone in my RC that needs to realign himself with God and his purposes. Amen, I've been seeing somebody in this church, in this room, their Instagram posts, and they need to realign themselves with God and his purposes. I've been seeing someone's social media and how it's so married to the politics of this day, and that person really needs to realign themselves with God and his purposes. Before we say amen for everybody else in the room, maybe we should start and ask ourselves the question where, have, where am I misaligned? Where am I not centered on God and his purposes? How do we need to sit down and say a prayer like Nehemiah's, but for ourselves? Ask yourself the question where have you let the surrounding world define your faith more than Jesus? Or his word to us? Where have you done that? Not the person in your RC, not the Instagram post person, not whomever. Where have you not aligned yourself with God and his purpose by allowing the world to come in and shape your identity more than Jesus and his word? What are the ways that you live life that discourages the body? Not as many amens. Where are the ways that you live life that if someone looks at you and says, man, that person's a Christian, they're in the body, that discourages me. How can you answer that question? If we're going to pray a prayer like Nehemiah's, if we're going to really believe it's never too late to realign ourselves with God's purposes, I don't know if we can do it without examining ourselves first and asking ourselves first where something has gone on in us. It's really easy to see where people have been influenced by the world that are not us. It's really easy to see where other people are discouraging and not us. And sometimes we'll be doing the same exact thing, but there's so much grace and mercy because I'm doing it. Where do you need to realign with God and his purposes? And guess what? It's It's not too late. It's not too late to do that you've had a secret sin too long, you've told nobody about, it's done so much damage to you and maybe to others, it's not too late to turn back to God. Your marriage is a complete mess. It's not too late to turn back to God. There there are things about you that need to change and you know they need to change, but you're so old now that you're just like, I just am going to wait. I'm just going to let Jesus cleanse me. (laughs) It's not too late to turn back to God. There's some of you in this room, you're like, hey, I do the Sunday thing, but I know I've been unfaithful. And I've been unfaithful, I just kind of like have this half faith. Sometimes I have it, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I follow Jesus, sometimes I don't. And I've been doing that for years, and it just feels like, hey, until Jesus returns, that's just what it's going to be. It's not too late to turn back to God and realign yourself with his purposes. It's not too late, church. Now, turning back to God and realigning yourself with his purposes Uh, That's not going to make all those problems go away necessarily. But what it's going to do is going to help you live into who God created you to be. And now instead of trying to do things in your own strength or ignore things to bring about your own righteousness, you will be able to see yourself as you are and you will be able to draw close to the Lord in the way you haven't before. It's never too late for us to turn back to God. Right? A lot of people have left the church over the last year because they've been discouraged. It's because they thought it was too late. It's not too late for us, church, to turn back to God and realign ourselves with his purposes. Okay, uh, the second way I think this prayer can form us as God's people and answer that question, what does it mean for us to be God's people, is this. God's people see their sin as a whole and individually. And they are so bothered by that that they confess it to God and to each other. Okay? I'm gonna say that again. God see, God's people see their sin as a whole and individually, and they're so bothered by it that they confess it and they spend time confessing it. Did you notice Nehemiah doing that in the prayer? Nehemiah confesses the sin of Israel. Isn't that interesting? It's really interesting for some of you in the room. (laughs) He confesses the whole sin of Israel. One of the reasons why it's interesting to me do you know that Nehemiah, he didn't grow up in Israel more than likely? So he's in exile. He's a minority group and not really a people in this huge Persian empire that oppresses his people, not because of his own sins. And he feels the need to confess the sins of his ancestors, of his great granddaddies, and farther. Because he goes, This is why we're in the place we're, we're in. But he doesn't stop there. He also confesses his individual sin. Even though he could easily go, Hey, it's all their fault we're in this place. And that's how he could pray if he wanted. He goes, you know what? Me and my daddy, our whole house has been sitting and acting corruptly as well. And he's so bothered by it, he has to confess it. Here's the thing about God's people and God's people confessing corporate sin, which why I say that's interesting is because that's become a very controversial idea over the last year. For a variety of reasons, some good, some bad. But for God's people... The reason we can confess our sin as a whole is because God's people are so joined together that when one part of our body sins, we feel like we're sinning too. Like when one part of the church sins, we are so joined together as the body that we feel like we are sinning too, and so we confess it. Or we could get defensive and defend ourselves and say, hey, I'm not doing that. But I'll tell you what, when my non-Christian friends come to me and they say, hey, Anthony, I saw this video on the news and this church was doing this and uh, American evangelicals are doing this, I have a choice. I could go, well, not me. I'm awesome. Or I could say, man, I know. I am sorry. I don't know why we're doing that. I, I, I am a pastor. I have to figure this out. I will try to figure, like, and, and that's honestly what I will say to my non-Christian friends. Now, it's, if I said, hey, no, I'm awesome, I'm a great Christian, they'd be like, he's not getting it. It's weird to me that the world knows our theology better than us sometimes. Like, they know the church is joined together as the body. The world doesn't even know why they know that. I think it's the spirit working and doing things. They know the standard, and I think it's the Spirit working to us and going, hey, if if I have to make profits out of somebody, I'm going to make it out of non-Christians just to mess with everybody. We are so joined together that we can confess our sin corporately. But we also have to see where we individually are sinning, where we have messed up. And we have to acknowledge all of that to God. This is what God's people do. We are so bothered by our sin that we confess it. This is why every service here, we have a confession moment where we try to sing a song or pray a prayer around this idea of confessing our sin together. This is what God's people do. We're bothered by our sin, so we confess it together, which feels like a really big downer and a really big bummer. But... It is so good for us to confess our sin. It helps us to see who God has really made us to be. It, help us, it helps us to remember the grace and mercy he has for us. It helps us to remember that we can't save ourselves. It helps us to remember that God is on this continuing uh, redeeming of us each and every day. That's why we confess our sin. God's people are so bothered by their sin, they confess it together as a whole even when they're not part of that particular sin and individually. It's right there in Scripture with Nehemiah doing that. This is what God's people do. Church, the plank is in our eye. Are we gonna see it and confess it? Okay. The third way that that this prayer helps us to know what it means to be God's people Is God's people know God's story, and that is what helps them to interpret the times. I need to take another drink. It's dry. Flagstaff's a dry place. So God's people know God's story, and that is what helps them to interpret the times. Nehemiah knew where he was in God's plan. He knew the story. He knew the Bible. So when he finds himself in this situation where his city that he's supposed to have grown up in Is in ruins, he knows what to do because he knows the story. And when I say he knows God's story, I mean he knows the Bible. He knows the Bible, he knows the Old Testament at that point. And so when God's people find themselves in this place, he knows exactly what to do. He knows that he can turn back to God. That he doesn't have to spiral into despair, although he gives God his despair, and in Nehemiah, we're going to see him despair again. But he knows that he can turn back to God, and he can invite others to turn back to God, and they can begin this rebuilding of God's people amongst the remnant. He knew the story. He knew the Bible. And so he could interpret the times. He can interpret what he was supposed to do. He knew God's story. Do we Do we know God's story? Do we remember God's story? When the times are dangerous for us, do we know God's story well enough to know what to do in the danger? When the times are discouraging for us, do we know God's story well enough to know what to do? What to remember? So for those of us that fear the danger of culture consuming us, there's parts of the story that I feel like we've forgotten. Have we forgotten that the gates of hell can't prevail against the gospel? It's Jesus' words, not mine. Have we forgotten that we are to fight the good fight of faith, not the bloody, disgusting fight of the culture wars? I'm serious. Like, we, have we forgotten we're, we're to fight the good fight of the faith? Have we forgotten that Ephesians says that the earth is Christ's footstool? It's not just some fun imagery. Paul is trying to say, hey, everybody is under Christ's reign. Christ is king and you're not and no empire is no matter how much it looks like it is Christ is king have we forgotten that church when we see the danger coming in that there's so much of the biblical story that we can latch onto in hope because of what Jesus is doing for those of us over here discouraged by the church looking at the church and looking at the body of believers and going, man, they're just not living up to their their identity in Christ. I think we've forgotten the story too. Have we forgotten that God's people have always been knuckleheads? With or without the Holy Spirit? Like you can read in the Old Testament, God's people being knuckleheads, and you can read in the New Testament, God's people with the Holy Spirit being knuckleheads. At one point in the New Testament, God drops dead a couple because they lied. It's a hard story, and that's for another day. Sorry to give you some doubts and things to spiral with, but God's people have always been knuckleheads. Have we forgotten that the, that the gospel, it's tossed on all kinds of soils, all kinds of different soils, and because of what sort of soil is in those people's hearts and what God is doing determines what grows and what sort of faith they have and express? Have we forgotten that the, the founding members of Jesus' kingdom were prostitutes? Oppressors, cowards, wannabe revolutionaries, not a healthy group. Have we forgotten that the church, us, we're always going to be a mess, or there's always going to be messy people in here, in this room, because Jesus came to save the sick, not the healthy? We can pretend we're healthy, we're just fooling ourselves. Have we forgotten that? So when we're discouraged, I think there's a lot of the biblical story we've forgotten. Now, it could sound like I'm saying, hey, then don't do anything. If you sense the danger coming in, don't do anything. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that when we understand the danger, we realize we have a greater hope that's in Jesus. And Jesus will do a work no matter what. And we can hope in that. And we don't have to fight this divisive, judgmental, bloody culture war in these in this room in our local churches right i'm watching it churches are dividing over and over again and they're just becoming echo chambers of people that all think the same and it's all along the cultural political lines what is going on church i'm serious that's not who we are You can sense the danger of the culture coming in and consuming us. I think it's a real danger. But what we do in that minute is we go, hey, let's press more deeply into Jesus. Hey, let's be ride or die with each other. When some of God's people are in danger and you think they're in danger of something happening, the way you uh, deal with that danger is not by being like, hey, I'm out, right? Right? Say the danger was someone was going to hit a brother or sister of Christ. It was a car was going to come hit them. We wouldn't be like, you know what I should do right now? Run the opposite direction. But that's what we've begun to do. We need to press more deeply into Jesus as we sense that danger. We need to encourage others to press more deeply into Jesus. For those of us that are discouraged... same thing is happening but I feel like a lot of the discouraged people are just going I'm not part of the church anymore I just can't be part of the church just can't be part of this and there's a lot of things wrestling there I want to give grace and mercy and I'd love to sit with you and talk through that more but those that are discouraged by the church we should be called to action In our discouragement, like Nehemiah, instead of just being discouraged and pulling away, we, like Nehemiah, should pray and press into God and ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for me to love fervently? What does it mean for me to speak the truth and love to my brothers and sisters, and that even when they react poorly to how I speak the truth and love, to still be with them and push them towards Jesus? That's what we're called to do in the danger and discouragement. And if we've forgotten the biblical story, if we've forgotten what God has done, if we've forgotten his word, in these times of danger and discouragement, we're not going to know what to do. And so we see what the last year looked like, where people are leaving churches over the silliest things. I almost set an example, and I said, I don't want to deal with that email. Isn't that sad too? <laughs> like, If we're going to be God's people, we have to know the story. We have to know the Bible as one story. We have to know his word. That's going to be what helps us to be God's people in these times of danger and discouragement for us. Nehemiah's prayer shows us so much about what it means for us to be God's people, to be the church, to be his body. It shows us that it's never too late for us to turn back to God. The church could look like it's in ruins to you, but it's not too late. Your life could look like it's in ruins, but it's not too late to turn back to God and realign yourself with his purposes. His prayer shows us that it's important for us to acknowledge sin corporately as a group and individually. His prayer also shows us how key it is to knowing the Bible, knowing the one story Knowing God's story, knowing God's word, and how important that is for God's people for us to interpret the times that we're in. Jesus has grafted us into the people of God. He was holy where they were not and where we are not. He came and took care of sin in a way they couldn't, in a way we couldn't. He died on the cross, giving us forgiveness. We can't bring that to ourselves. Only Jesus can offer that. He resurrected, which shows he wants to restore more than just a place. He wants to restore the universe and give us that resurrection if only we would believe. Nehemiah has a lot to show us about what it means to be God's people. As we go through this book this summer, I'm excited to see how God forms us. And may that be our prayer over this next week. That the book of Nehemiah would form us into being more truly and sincerely God's people. May we be his people. May we hear that call. May we do it driven by the grace that Jesus has extended us. Amen, church. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that all those years ago when you were speaking through Nehemiah as he was writing this down and doing these different things, that you wanted to speak to us too. God, I have a few prayers for us as we get into this book of Nehemiah. One is that we would uh, understand how although we are in a different context than Nehemiah, that there are things for you to say to us through the book of Nehemiah. Would you give me, as as the person who's gonna teach the bulk of this here over this summer, would you give me the ability to teach it well, to hear from you, God? I don't wanna just preach my own ideas, God. I want to preach what you wanna say. Help us to hear from you. Help us to know you more. God, I I said a lot this morning, and it can feel like, oh, man, who are we? What are we going to do? Like, What's the place we're in? God, please let the words I, I spoke this morning be something that encourages us into being a more faithful people. That encourages us to love you more. That encourages us to love each other more. That encourages us to love God's church, his people more. God, help us to be that people. Let us see the beautiful thing that we have, the Holy Spirit, in us. And that's something the people in Nehemiah's day didn't have in the measure that we have it. God, thank you and help us. We need you. Amen.